I'm Scott Aniel, and you're listening to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. In this episode, I'd like to interact with an online exchange that took place over the last couple of days that I think provides a good teachable moment. But first, I want to let you know about a new book that I have coming out in about a month. It's entitled, Let the Little Children Come, Family Worship on Sundays and the Other Six Days Too. It's being published by Free Grace Press, and it will be released on June 11th. But you can already pre-order the book at freegracepress.com, and there are bulk discounts available there as well. In this book, I am seeking to try to convince church leaders and parents that children best grow into faithful, mature worshipers of Jesus Christ when they are led to Jesus by their parents in the context of intergenerational church gatherings and in daily worship at home. In part one of the book, I present biblical and theological reasons that families should worship together both on Sundays and the other six days too. I address common objections, and then I suggest some practical ways family worship might be recovered. In part two, I then offer practical tips and lots of resources for engaging children in church worship on Sunday, as well as family worship at home. I hope you'll check this book out. You can pre-order the book already at freegracepress.com. A couple of days ago, I saw on social media and then actually had several people email me about an article that was posted at First Things entitled, The Liturgical Medium is the Message by Hans Burzma. The central message of this article is quite good. The author builds off of Marshall McLuhan's well-known statement that the medium is the message to argue that form and liturgy matter, that they actually embody values and even theology, and then shape those values and theology into the worshipers. He says, when we put asunder medium and message, we let go of the particularity of liturgical traditions telling ourselves that what counts is simply keeping the message intact. The new medium that results is predictable. Liturgical renewals in Lutheran, Calvinist, and Catholic churches end up looking nearly identical. And what he means by that is the move of many traditions toward a more contemporary worship. But what the author helpfully argues is that when you change the medium, you actually change the message. He says, The liturgical medium is itself the message. The liturgy, the music, the architecture, all of it combines to communicate and embody certain theological emphases and values that are inherent in that particular tradition's theology. He says, the form and content relationship requires careful theological and metaphysical reflection. When traditional Calvinist churches, he says, switch from the Genevan Psalter to worship songs, it's not just the form that changes, Calvinism itself is doomed at that point. What he means is that the actual forms of music embody the underlying values of Calvinist theology. When you give up those forms, you're actually giving up the theology. He continues, when Anglican traditions trade their organ-led anthems and chants for band-led praise and worship songs, what is lost is a Catholic spirituality that foregrounds reverence and humility in adoration of God. 
when Catholic liturgies replace Gregorian chant with evangelical songs, a mystical and contemplative tradition comes to an ignominious end. I think he's exactly right as far as it goes. There is an underlying theology embodied in all liturgical and art forms within the context of corporate worship. Art and liturgy are not simply decorative, and they're not simply based on preference. They actually communicate and embody a message, and therefore form and shape that message into the hearts and lives of the worshipers. I'd encourage you to read the whole post at firstthings.com. Well, a couple of days later, Glenn Packiam posted a response at Missio Alliance entitled, Why Contemporary Worship Isn't Actually Ruining the Church. I always appreciate what Packiam writes. He's a very thoughtful writer within a contemporary context and within a Pentecostal theology. Packiam actually agrees with Burzma's central argument to a point, just as I do. Packiam agrees that the liturgical medium is the message, What he disagrees with is Burzma's underlying assumption that liturgical traditions have moved in a more contemporary direction, particularly because of a church growth impulse. He disagrees with a really secondary point that Burzma makes, that contemporary worship is what it is, largely as churches attempt to attract and bring in seekers. Packiam points to Lester Ruth and Sui Hong Lim's excellent book, Lovin' on Jesus, A Concise History of Contemporary Worship, to suggest that there are other factors that have led to the contemporary worship phenomenon. He points out that Ruth and Lim traced multiple root systems for the contemporary worship movement. Yes, one is indeed a missional impulse born of a burden to reach the lost, but another, Packiam points out, Arguably the more dominant one, I actually agree with Pacquiam here, is the expectation of an encounter with the presence of God. Pacquiam continues, Contemporary worship songs that are being sung around the world aren't being written by seeker-friendly megachurches trying to set Jesus-y lyrics to Taylor Swift tunes just to get the kids to come through the doors. I agree with Pacquiam here. He says, The songs are being written, notice this, by charismatic worship leaders who believe that something happens when the people of God gather to praise God. I think Packiam is exactly right. The most dominant influence upon the formation of what we know today as contemporary worship is an underlying charismatic theology that leads to a certain expectation of what we ought to experience of the presence of God in worship. Lim and Ruth point this out, and I would highly recommend reading their book, Lovin' on Jesus. They point out that Pentecostalism, with its, quote, revisioning of a New Testament emphasis upon the active presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit, is one of five key sources of contemporary worship. The other four are youth ministry, baby boomers, Jesus people, and then church growth missiology. What Packiam is pointing out is that the First Thing article centers in on church growth missiology and ignores what is perhaps the more significant influence of the formation of contemporary worship, and that is Pentecostal theology. Lim and Ruth suggest that, quote, Pentecostalism's shaping of contemporary worship has been both through its own internal development and through an influencing of other Protestants in worship piety, and practice. 
In other words, there are many churches today who may not explicitly adopt a charismatic theology, but nevertheless have been influenced by a charismatic theology through the formation and adoption of contemporary worship. Lim and Ruth point out there are four ways in which Pentecostal theology and worship have influenced broad evangelicalism. One, mainstreaming the desire to be physical and expressive in worship. Two, highlighting intensity as a liturgical value. Three, a certain expectation of experience to the forms of contemporary worship. And four, a musical sacramentality that raises the importance of the worship set as well as the musicians leading this set. Limonruth explained, Pentecostalism contributed contemporary worship sacramentality, that is, both the expectation that God's presence could be encountered in worship and the normal means by which this would happen, creating an expectation for encountering God active and present through the Holy Spirit. So what Pacquiam is pointing out, based on Limonruth, rightly so, is that much of what makes up contemporary worship today is no longer exclusively about reaching seekers, although that may have been true in the past. The driving force behind contemporary worship today is actually an influence of Pentecostal theology. Pacquiam points to the Latter Rain Movement, which he says is a movement which repeatedly taught that God inhabits the praises of his people And so we should expect some sign of his manifest presence when we worship. I think he's right. Contemporary worship embodies a theology that expects some sign of God's manifest presence in worship. But then Pacquiam continues to point out then a consequent problem with Borsma's argument. Borsma, Pacquiam points out, praises medieval liturgies for the way that, quote, human expressions of beauty participate in divine beauty. Pacquiam notes that Burisma sees chants and organ music as, quote, enchanted worship with the liturgy uniting heaven and earth. But what Pacquiam rightly points out is that, quote, this is exactly how many Christians view contemporary worship services. Play that thick ambient keyboard pad, drone that electric guitar, let the voices soar on the melodies of these anthems, and the worshiper becomes aware of God with us, of heaven and earth becoming one. Contemporary worship, Pacquiam points out, is built on the expectation of encounter from pastors to worshipers. In other words, Pacquiam is saying that what contemporary worshipers are expecting through their contemporary worship and therefore embodying in the contemporary worship forms, is actually very similar, if not exactly the same, as what medieval worshipers were expecting and embodying in the high forms of medieval liturgy and music as well. Again, I think Pacquiam is exactly right. Medieval Christians and those who still desire those higher forms of liturgy and arts in worship often want to experience the worship of heaven, the presence of God, tangibly in the worship service, either expecting that heaven comes down to us when we worship or that we are experientially led into the heavenly temple through the sacramental ceremonies. 
And likewise, in much of contemporary worship, Christians expect to be able to tangibly feel the manifest presence of God when they worship, whether through a visible display of his glory, miraculous gifts, or emotional rapture. The goal of music and the worship leader is often to usher worshipers into the presence of God in heaven, or as one author put it, to bring congregational worshipers into a corporate awareness of God's manifest presence. This has resulted in embodying that theology in music within corporate worship, raising the matter of musical style to a level of significance that Ruth and Lim describe as musical sacramentality where music is now considered a primary means through which people experience God's presence and worship. So actually, Burzma and Pachium agree on two points. Number one, that the way that we worship, the liturgies and art forms of our worship, embody theology and form theology. And they also have a certain expectation about experiencing the manifest presence of God. Boersma simply believes that the more mystical high liturgies are what lead to that experience, whereas Pachium points out that this is the expectation within the contemporary worship medium. And actually, this is where I would disagree with both. The biblical reality is that truly, through Christ, we worship in heaven. Ephesians 2, 6 says that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 18 says, For through Christ we have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to the Father because in one spirit through Christ we are actually there in the presence of God in heaven. This is what Hebrews chapter 12 points out. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, When we worship, we are actually, through Christ, in the Spirit, in the presence of God, joining in with the worship that is taking place in heaven. But we need to realize that although this is a very real reality for the Christian, this is not yet a physical reality. Our bodies are still here on earth while we really are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The problem is that we are physical beings, and as physical beings, we naturally tend toward defining the essence of our communion with God in his presence in physical terms. This is one reason that Christians have often gravitated toward the external forms of Old Testament worship, for example. Altars and priests and adornments and incense and candles and vestments. They feel more real. This was the problem with medieval worship. And this is why Christians today often gravitate toward an experiential focus in worship where we define the presence of God in physical, sensual terms. We know that the Bible teaches that we are seated in the heavens with Christ. We know that we have access to the presence of God through Christ in the Spirit, but we want physical proof of these spiritual realities. We want to be able to feel God's presence. We want to tangibly experience communion with God. This is inherent to Pentecostal theology. This is a theological disagreement that I have with both Pachium and Boersma, with both contemporary worship and high liturgical worship rooted in a medieval theology. But here's what we need to remember. 
while we truly are in God's presence through Christ, it is in the spirit and is not yet a physical reality. We are already there spiritually, but not yet bodily. And this is why faith is necessary for communion with God in this already not yet relationship between worship as it is now and the future worship of heaven. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Faith is the means by which we are able to draw near to communion with God through Christ in the heavenly temple, though we do not yet experience that communion in physical ways. We need faith as we draw near to communion with God, because even though we know we have access to the presence of God in the real temple of heaven, we can't see it or experience it with any of our physical senses. Our communion with God is in its essence spiritual. And so we come with assurance and conviction that when we draw near through Christ, we are actually in the presence of God in heaven, even though we have no tangible physical proof. And we shouldn't expect tangible physical proof. Our worship is a spiritual participation of heavenly worship meant to form us to live now in light of that true spiritual reality. I want to conclude this episode by recommending a book that argues this point very, very well and articulates both a theology of worship and an embodied liturgical form of worship that reflects what I believe to be a more accurate biblical emphasis of our spiritual participation in the worship of heaven and the importance of being weakly formed by that in our corporate worship. Every so often, a book that I read warrants the thought in my mind, I wish I would have written this book. And such is the case with the book, What Happens When We Worship by Jonathan Landry Cruz. Cruz's primary concern is Christians who find worship boring, who want a more experiential emphasis in corporate worship. The solution to the problem, Cruz argues, is not that worship needs to be made more interesting, or I would add, an emphasis on experiencing the manifest presence of God. Rather, Cruz insists that we find worship boring because, quote, we are not aware of what is happening when we worship. And so Cruz argues that something is happening when we worship. Something happens to us. Something happens between us and the people we worship with. And most importantly, something happens between us and God. Cruz spends a couple of chapters in part one explaining a biblical theology of worship from scripture that answers this central problem. And then in part two, he explores various elements of a worship service that enact worship's purpose. And he's particularly explaining a theology and practice of worship rooted in a reformed tradition of worship that sees worship as a spiritual participation in the worship of heaven, as I've been articulating. Cruz argues that in corporate worship, we do meet with God spiritually, shaping us into worshipers, which is the most important thing that we'll ever do. This transformational meeting is a regular renewal of our covenant with God. That's different than expecting an experience of God's presence. 
Rather, when we gather, we are renewing our covenant relationship with God. We are reminded again both of our sinfulness and God's faithfulness to remain true to the promises he has made to us in Christ. In corporate worship, we renew our commitment to obey God's commands, and we enjoy communion with other saints with whom we share union in Christ. This is different than both the medieval high church expectation of experiencing the presence of God through ornate liturgical practices and the Pentecostal expectation of experiencing God's presence through music. A thorough understanding of these significant realities that take place each week we gather for corporate worship, Cruz suggests, should lead us to intentional preparation and heartfelt engagement in the service. We won't chase after excitement or entertainment or an expectation of experiencing God's felt presence. Rather, we will be satisfied with the simplicity and ordinariness of what we do recognizing that truly extraordinary things are happening by the Spirit of God. Cruz's argument is both biblically rich and historically grounded. He offers really nothing new, per se. Rather, what Cruz presents is an important and necessary corrective to the expressionist worship so common both in medieval high church traditions and in modern evangelicalism influenced by a Pentecostal theology. This book will become required reading in several of my classes. It's easy to read, suitable for lay people, pastors, and students, but deeply profound and enriching. I wish I would have written this book. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.